Hello, and welcome back to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast all about the gaming industry. I'm one of your hosts, Sam Mosier, joined once again by Real-Time Strategy correspondent slash substitute teacher, as we coined him on our last episode, Nick Shepard. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm great, man. It's nice to be uh, back in the classroom. I don't know if I can extend that analogy <laughs> any further. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, Caitlin has returned from Gamescom but has taken some much uh, well-deserved time off. So joining us this week is Triple Point's own Blaine Humphreys, account supervisor, virtual reality pro, and much to Blaine's amusement, I also coined him our metal expert. Uh, no, not the material, I'm referring to the music. Uh, for anyone who knows Blaine, knows that he has a very deep and wide uh, taste in metal music. So if you have As any I, questions uh, about that, go to him. As I subject my fellow colleagues to it every so often. (laughs) (laughs) Every birthday, specifically. (laughs) I just want to let it be known that I absolutely queued up like a ripping guitar solo for when Blaine was supposed to be saying that. And I was going to play it over the speakers. And (laughs) then I couldn't get it to play. So moment lost, (laughs) but it did happen. Listen, we can just say it happened, but due to like copyright strike issues, it just didn't make the final cut of the episode. <laughs> yes. Name the producer. <laughs> <laughs> well, Blaine, Nick, thank you so much for joining us this week because we'll be discussing the game of the moment uh, right now, Starfield, uh, and all of the headlines, press coverage, and hubbub surrounding the game, both leading into launch and now post-launch, having it launched in early access on September 1st and widely on September 6th. Uh, but before we get into all of that, Blaine, we like to ask our you know, our, our new people joining us here at the virtual table uh, a warm-up question. And as Starfield will inevitably be some people's game of the year, I want to ask you, Blaine, what is your game of the year or games of the year at this time? So it's weird because I go by my game of the moments. Uh, and of those, I have three. Uh, and that's Destiny 2, which I'm blaming entirely on Nick, uh, <laughs> because I play all the time, and it's his fault. Uh, and then I play a lot of Vampire the Masquerade Blood Hunt, because, you know, as the uh, resident triple point goth kid, it's what I should do. <laughs> uh, and I also have been playing Tears of the Kingdom, because it's awesome, and I love getting lost in it. So it'll be a, a while before I get pried away from those, but you know, also check out other things too. <laughs> nice. I like it. Yeah. Tears of the kingdom. That's one that you could spend the rest of your life in and probably still always discover something new. <laughs> I mean, I spent like four years in breath of the wild. So like, <laughs> it's, yeah, I just beat that game for the first time weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember you talking yeah. about it on this show. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's never too late. It's never too late. Nick, I'm curious, what's your answer? Is it Final Fantasy 16? Oh, I beat that already. Um, great game, though. Uh, I I just started playing Baldur's Gate, um, and I am in love with it so far, but save scumming my way across uh, <laughs> multiple maps and deaths and team party kills and... Um, mostly just playing it, really, to kind of crib uh, inspiration for DMing future the mm. campaigns um there's like a lot of fun different sort of storylines and wackiness and you know it all fits within like D rules because it's literally made inside them so um it's easy to just be like use the claw machine and take out a little scenario and drop it in my own campaign yeah i'm very thankful for the triple point team for getting me through my first D campaign because i feel much more equipped now uh getting into Baldur's gate three myself i'm playing with a couple friends and we, we are a safes coming partly because we've done some dumb decisions in combat that didn't play out very well uh but can trips and uh, long rest, quick rest, all these things that like, if I hadn't known, I would be completely lost. Now I am just, uh, you know, slightly Only lost like at mildly. times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how I, I, like, I, like- I DM things and I'm like, oh, that's a rule when I'm playing the game. Like, Oops, <laughs> didn't enforce that one last time. So yeah, I mean, like you could play that game done D and D or, or Baldur's Gate three, I guess your entire life and never run into uh something you understand i i feel like i was able to join the much broader like nerd culture ecosystem after playing D with uh, <laughs> when we did that game so 
it was a learning experience. <laughs> it was. I admittedly didn't know what a druid was until I played D&D, and now I see them everywhere. <laughs> Not in real life, <laughs> just in media. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. There's one in real life. There we go. Uh, oh, That's my gosh. My druid tat. <laughs> Is that the class you're rolling in uh, Baldur's Gate uh, 3? Yeah, I have, I have two. I have, like, this one, too, which is also, like, druid-like. Um, I don't know. It's... Uh, I, when did this become like a strip show? I think it turned weird. <laughs> <laughs> but this yes, is a great is a advertisement for all all our listeners to check out the video yeah. version. <laughs> Tattoos. <laughs> Real skin time podcast. I don't know. I'm I'm struggling. This right is way off the rails. <laughs> I'm playing a uh, druid in Baldur's Gate 3 as well. I talked to the wrong person uh in one of the first like settlements you you end up at and i got myself put in jail uh and unfortunately partly because my party doesn't have that that much patience me turning into either a badger i couldn't dig myself out of the jail cell <laughs> and i forget what other i think i tried like turning into a cat and and the cat was much larger than i expected so i couldn't get through the gates or the you know the slots of the jail cell so we just we save scummed that and got out of it. <laughs> it it was interesting following like the media cycle around it like right before launch because i remember there was that headline that broke about how you could be a bear and do adult things to animals <laughs> and oh, yeah. it spiked pre-orders significantly <laughs> it was, once that took off it was uh Turns out gamers are sickos. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, Larian. <laughs> Larian knows they leaned into it, and and it was huge on headlines. Very popular with Twitch streamers, and they've even said, you know, in the space between then and now, like, for lack of a better term, gamers are horny, and they want <laughs> to live that fantasy out. But it's funny, speaking about Baldur's Gate 3, it transitions nicely into our game topic of the week, uh, because not only are you romancing folks in Baldur's Gate 3, you can do the same in Starfield, uh, the other big RPG, which is funny because Baldur's Gate 3 launched its PlayStation version uh, the same day as Starfield launched widely on PC and Xbox, kind of being like, oh, you can't, maybe you can't go to the stars on your console, but you can live your role-playing fantasy here. Uh, but... Speaking of Starfield, we're going to break down all of the ways, methods, and means that it is made for headlines better or for worse in the last couple of months. So I want to roll us back a couple months to what I see as the start of the launch campaign improper, um, the Xbox Game Showcase in June. Um, following, you know, this was part of the Summer Game Fest window for all those who remember. Um, we got a look at, as we're seeing on the video version right now, Fable and uh, a couple other big Xbox games coming to Game Pass over the next couple months, years, uh, Forza Motorsport, etc. And it ended uh, with a massive 40-plus minute deep dive into Starfield, a game we'd only seen just a bit of last year at Xbox's Game Showcase. And this answered a lot of questions um, that fans, press, and, you know, the skeptical had about the game. And so looking at this just as kind of a, a use case or a case study, Nick Blaine, what's your take on game presentation deep dives? You know, you think your PlayStation state of plays, um, your Nintendo directs that dive into a specific thing. What makes one of these successful versus noise? So I actually want to even go back even further um, just because I remember Starfield was sort of teased, leaked, kind of, uh, all the way back like 10 years ago. And uh, Bethesda just kind of let it sit for a while. And then I remember when it was like really announced back in, I think it was E3 2018, all they really showed was like the logo and like a little slight movement. And everyone was so excited. And you could tell from that moment that that's all they had to show that they, that this was going to be a big deal. And then even then after that, they just kind of didn't talk about it. Like you said, like before this year, there was a lot of unknowns uh, that people had a lot of questions about it. Like, how's it going to run? How does it work? Is it planetary exploration? Like, is it an RPG? Like, what what is it? Right. And 
Bethesda and I guess by extension now Microsoft was very content to just let people speculate. Uh, and it kind of helped drive a lot of long tail coverage showing, you know, that there was interest in this thing. Uh, so this year, you know, whenever they did that, that deep dive, I, I remember when they announced they were doing like the Starfield Direct. That's all really anyone talked about for a while was just that this show was going to happen. They didn't even say much. They were just like, hey, be excited. This is going to happen. Uh, and it did. And it was actually a really good use case of how to pull one of these off well, because it's almost like they took each of the key features and they broke those key features into key features and then gave each segment like its own room to breathe. Uh, and I found that, especially because that was like, what was like a 45 minute long video of just showing that game and just them talking about it. And yeah, it really, I think that's what kicked off the more modern or present media cycle for it. Cause a lot of the conversations stemmed from that showcase. Totally. Um, I agree with everything you said. I'm going to throw a couple things out that I think contributed to it. Um, First and foremost is the last big sci-fi game launch, which went over (laughs) with a big womp womp, which is cyberpunk, right? Cyberpunk had did sort of the opposite of what Starfield did. And we're like, let's do deep dives like years before you can play. And they like ran out of features. Uh, They ran out of content to promote. They then, you know, got into hyping various things because they were sort of out of talking about the high level, big picture stuff. Right. So like they're four years into the game campaign and they're like breaking down, like, this is how like the mods will work. And all of a sudden you've gotten to a place where you're talking about things that you're kind of hoping are going to be in the game, but the game's still in development and still being made and things are changing all of the time. And they're at they're way down the road in what what is new that they can talk about. They've already painted it with broad strokes like 10 times. So now they're in the weeds super early. Things change, expectations change, hype changes, and you just have the perfect storm for what was, you know, truly an abysmal launch, right? Like not only did the game not work um, from a technical standpoint and got pulled by all of these people and all of that stuff, but like the level of specificity that, uh, gosh, I totally people just CD project red, God just fully blanked from my brain. As I was talking, the level of specificity that CD project red had already showed didn't actually end up in the, in the final game. And so people not only were disappointed that, you know, it didn't run well, but they'd been promised something that wasn't in the game. And so now you've created this horrible situation that really, I think, had a lot of AAA developers examining when is the right time in our pre-production or production phases or go-to-market plans, et cetera, and moving that deep dive into gameplay significantly closer to launch. And obviously, that worked out really well for Starfield. Um, I think, like Blaine said, there were sort of like almost like mini parts of that deep dive where you could like really clearly see there were sort of four key features that they were wanted to make sure like they went into in depth, but not so in depth that if they changed, I don't know, some starship engine from like a 60 light years per second to 45 light years per second, people aren't like, Oh, you nerfed my <laughs> engine. They didn't even have yet. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it's interesting, like to answer this question at a very, very, very high level. What is the right time? What is the right amount of content? All of that stuff depends on the game, but like the timing is probably way more important than the content. Um, yeah. And this was like you know one giant crescendo note that led to a big blaring whatever s note for the entire summer well they were able holding it the way they did let them be flexible right because they weren't you know using cyberpunk as the example like they announced all that stuff and then it was delayed and then they had to you know kind of reorient the entire campaign right so they waiting until the product was in a showable and i would say near complete enough state sure but starfield was a lot of those too right what was that? Starfield was Starfield was also delayed. So the discipline that yeah. they had 
to not do all of that stuff paid double dividends because they didn't have that delay hitting them like it did for CD Projekt Red. Yeah. Yeah. And and doing the the light teasers and stuff they had done before still kept the game like announced, right? And they could talk about it conceptually. You know, so if they ever needed to, they could, but they they didn't need to, right? They didn't need to waste their ammunition until they were really ready. Well, and they'd confirmed its existence and they'd confirmed that it was in development and all of those things that you sort of have to do in order to put up job postings and recruit and retain talent and all of those things that you have to do at a corporate level. So those things were, all those boxes were checked. And then all of the PR, actual diving into the details, et cetera, could just be saved to exactly the right moment they needed to ignite the fire. And And they picked and chose the biggest moment in of gaming in the year so far, at least. I mean, maybe it's either TGAs or summer game fest. Yeah. Well, and the other component was, I remember after it was Redfall launched, a lot of eyes were on Starfield um, because, you know, that was their Microsoft's big project <laughs> following Redfall. And so I feel like had uh, Bethesda gone out earlier ahead of Redfall, people would have been a lot more speculative and uh, I don't know, not as confident uh, going into it, you know, whereas they waited until all that campaign was done. They weren't even competing for media attention with that. Uh, and then they were able to kind of put their best foot forward and be like, look, this is what it is. Right. What's the, uh, the Don, I, I quote Don Draper all the time just because he's <laughs> in advertising and he's quippy as hell, but he's in, there's that whole episode where he's talking about if you don't like the narrative, change the conversation. Um, mm. it's he resigns the tobacco account and is seen as like this super anti-smoker hero while he's also smoking a pack a day. And you're like, oh, this is brilliant advertising. Um, Microsoft had to do the same thing, right? Everyone yep. was sitting there being like, is Game Pass actually going to work? They disincentivized um, production so much because sales are essentially guaranteed or part and parcel and part of the package that when Redfall came out, it was a commercial success almost by definition, right? Because it it goes on to Game Pass and that's its primary means of distribution and didn't really matter that the game wasn't good, but it certainly put a lot of uh, microscopic attention onto the Game Pass model, onto Bethesda, onto Microsoft. Is this whole grand cloud gaming, subscription gaming, whatever you want to call it, experiment actually going to work? Or does it water down the product to a point where you can release a broken game? And who is the poster child for releasing broken games? (laughs) Bethesda. So it's like this, you know, they had a, a lot of things that they had to kind of um, combat and pre-address without directly talking to, and a 45-minute, holy cow, look at how insane the detail and depth and gameplay loops, and you can play this for the rest of your life and never see the same thing twice if you don't want to, um, was the exact method they needed to change that narrative, get out of the conversation that they were in currently, and start talking about Starfield, something that everyone was really excited about. Whew, that was a long rant. Yeah. <laughs> well, and actually, I remember last year, uh, I think it was last year, it was either in the summer or may have been during um, Game Awards, but they showed a, a gameplay, like the first ever gameplay trailer. And I remember there was a lot of attention on it because, you know, and this speaks to the importance of having highly polished assets. And that's something that I know we counsel all our clients on is that first trailer showed a lot of the signature Bethesda glitchiness, especially with the engine that they were using. And they immediately had to go on the defense about it. And so and I remember like they did that for a little bit. And then finally they were just like, you know what, we're done talking about it. And then they went focusing on the things they wanted to talk about. But, you know, that is a point of like any trailer or any asset you were putting out needs to be polished because <laughs> it may not have the effect you want it to have, or people will notice things that you may not have expected them to notice that you then have to kind of deal with in some way or not. I mean, if you're big enough, you don't have to, but <laughs> they did. So Yeah. It's interesting. You both talking about the, I think some people lovingly call it the Bethesda jank um, that yeah. their games are known for. They even do. Um, I think it's safe that if we all say it. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you both about that, you know, 
it's come out more closer to launch about them navigating both them being known for the bugs, but also making it so that Starfield's launch, I mean, frankly, seems like their most polished one so far. And that ties back into a point Nick made that I think is interesting is, is the Xbox Game Pass slash exclusivity boon as at least as they're saying in messaging is that because we're able to focus on only two platforms versus three or even four if you're counting ps4 and ps5 um this allows us to make the most polished product so far so that like you know checks that box there meanwhile they can still you know a bit of have their cake and eat it too because you you know you have pete hines talking to games industry biz saying that like we do like a little, you know, seasoning of chaos in our games. We like <laughs> that, you know, you might go into an elevator and some strange space creature got in there. It wasn't, you know, programmed or designed to, but that, you know, element of randomness or humor is part of what gives our games their charm. Um, so I that, think they've done a good job navigating that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was an interesting interview. I read that because it was talking about how some of the bugs can kind of like add to the experience versus bugs that you know are game breaking right so they really had to prioritize like which ones do they fix and how do they address them in a way that you know because they i think they are aware of their identity right (laughs) so you know like should you be able to take a horse up the mountain in skyrim no but you can and it's fun and they don't want to fix that right they want to keep that sort of goofiness uh, and I think that what you're seeing in Starfield is they really kind of embraced that uh, in a good and meaningful way. And they didn't shy away from talking about it. You know, when you've got a, a thing that everyone is expecting or is kind of like waiting for that gotcha style moment, lean into it and own it. Capture the messaging for yourself so you control that conversation. I think it's also interesting because I, I, I fully like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, right? <laughs> like on one hand, the game was delayed for massive polish right like that was like the stated reason for it being delayed was like we need to do a massive round of polish and bug fixing on the other hand they're out there talking about how like oh the bugs that we left in are a feature and you're like okay (laughs) sure and why did you delay this massively important game for like a year right what i do think it points to on the other side of it is going back to that game pass like the monetization and business model aspect of it I don't know how many physical copies of this game they projected to sell. I really don't. I I imagine it's significantly lower than a comparable exclusive on PlayStation. Um, But because it's mostly digital distribution through Game Pass, I think it allows them a lot more flexibility on dates. Uh, It's a lot less of like, how many CDs can I print and put in a package and ship to you know, Wisconsin and Alaska and Singapore all on the same day, right? There are just, there are fewer discs that are needed. Even the premium edition uh, just comes with a code and you just like put Mm -hmm. in the code on your Xbox and you download it, right? Like they made a lot of decisions that allowed for additional flexibility when it came to, uh, when it came to the launch time. And I think a lot of that was so that they had as much time as they possibly could to fix the bugs that Bethesda is infamous for. And so I don't buy any of the like, this is this, these bugs are actually a feature talk because they literally got millions of dollars and months and salaries and time and all of this to fix all of these bugs that they then say are like actually a good thing. Sure, they were, buddy. <laughs> well, I think, you know, thinking about it from the PR side, I mean, that's a thing where you know that's going to be a case and you can't ignore it. So just own it and control the conversation um, because. There was no escaping it, <laughs> you know. Oh no, I don't. Uh, I don't mean to criticize him. It's it's some intense like judo reversal throws, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's really well done, executed. But it's like it, it's what's the Steven Seagal martial art where it's like it, I take your force and apply it back against you, and like that's his whole aikido, <laughs> aikido. Yes, that one. Right? It's it's intense aikido moves where you're just you're like, oh, you threw a punch at me, like great, like let me just pull it this direction and turn it into something good. Yeah, it's an there's been an interesting series of <laughs> judo reverse. I I did not take anything anything close to that. So I'm gonna even pretend to be able to carry this metaphor. <laughs> um, but similar examples of this, whether it was with Starfield or just Xbox Game Pass, Redfall, as Blaine mentioned earlier, um, 
earlier in this year in May, uh, Phil Spencer was on the Kind of Funny X cast originally planned just to talk about the launch of Redfall. And of course, the reception that was much more mixed to negative than expected. Um, but he kept the interview and, and gave a, a very candid like hour long talk about the state of Xbox, their game strategy. And he even said so much as like, we know that even a game like Starfield is not going to reverse our position uh, in the console wars. Uh, we know that even if Starfield is game of the year, that that's not going to convince uh, you know a, a huge swath of millions of players to switch from PlayStation to Xbox. It's about building this foundation and you know audience on Game Pass that makes it a good service over time. And again, it's just like a case of like looking at the situation in the hands you're dealt and playing your hands as smartly and uh, twisting it or like, you know, just putting it within your strategy as smartly as you can. That doesn't make it seem like a loss and is part of the plan the whole time. I think that has been an impressive part of the last couple months of how they dealt with the fallout of Redfall. Yeah, I mean, that was a very impressive yeah. uh, sort of investor communications judo right. flip throw, whatever you want to call it, right? Of like, hey, listen, this game's going to do well, might not sell 100 million Xboxes or make us the dominant console in the market. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that and make sure that nobody, no analyst out there is like, the hype for Starfield is so immense that we expect Xbox to overtake the PS5 by the end of the year. Because they're not going to make that target. They knew that. And so they just went out there and said it and didn't have to deal with any outside, maybe less informed, don't have control of the own projections or the decision-making internally at Microsoft, um, putting information out there that could change and affect the market uh, and their market cap and all of that fun stuff. So Yeah, because you would hate for, for those like... You you would hate for those internal conversations to be happening, and suddenly the like market cap you have to get is so high that right. if you don't get it, th then it has a negative impact. Even though the game still sells incredibly well, you know. So the you other, to, the other yeah they go ahead. Oh, I was saying like they did a really good job of managing all of those different components. Uh, I would say even throughout the entire campaign, really. Yeah, I was gonna say the the other like financial judo flip whatever is um, if you notice, whenever Phil Spencer is out there talking about Xbox, he always says, um, this is just a small part of what Microsoft does as a company. Every single time, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't. what he doesn't want are uh, financial analysts out there being like, well, Phil Spencer is probably the most readily available interview at all of Microsoft, and he speaks for all of their product division. So, and so when he's optimistic, we should be optimistic about the stock. I mean, like they have a billion other products that all factor into their stock price. And even if tomorrow they were the single most dominant uh, force in all of video games, I don't know how much that would affect their stock price. It would certainly be positive, but it wouldn't be like a transformation overnight. Um, given how many other revenue streams and business units and products and all of that they have to support. And Phil is very, very, very upfront about making sure that is a part of every time he speaks. Another talking point along... Oh, what were you going to say? Was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Blaine, on the, the Phil Spencer? Because another talking point in the Starfield campaign I want to dig into is something that I, I converse a lot with my uh, PR professor back at my uh, alma mater, uh, Mizzou. And he's That's a adorable. huge Beth Bethesda fan. Um, like over when I'm working on over the summer and he's on summer break, we're friends on Steam. And I'll look in my bottom right corner and I'll see a little no notification that he's playing Fallout New Vegas or his like sixth playthrough of Skyrim. And we keep, when he can, uh, brings in examples of, you know, games PR into his classroom to talk about his case studies. And one thing he thought was, you know, personally for his own taste in gaming was a bit of a snafu was these headlines coming out right around a week or two before launch um, that the scope of the game really couldn't be understood until hundreds of hours into it. Um, Pete Hines was talking about how after 80 hours of side quests and then 50 hours of the main quest that he'd really start to understand what was, you know, at the core of Starfield, which, you know, as some 
gaming outlets like Kotaku put together. That's 130 hours. Um, and I'm curious what you both think about, and we've seen this with other games as well, the like, it doesn't get good or you don't understand it or the full thing isn't revealed until X hours in, which for me personally as a consumer is a turnoff. But I'm curious what you think is at the heart of it. Is it keeping people on Game Pass? Like you want to keep your subscription up because you know, you need two months with this game to truly understand it. Or is it something else? That's it. It's a combination of a lot of things. I mean, a lot of um, internal developer metrics are around user playtime. And so how do you get the most user playtime? You make a huge game. And I would say that that's been, or life service game, right? And that's been a core component of their messaging even since the initial teaser where they were like, it's going to have a million planets, right? That That is actually something that they said, you know, from the beginning. Um, and then that feeds into all aspects of the business. Because if you have, you know, a group of millions of players who are investing hundreds of hours into it, they're also going to be return customers, um, whether that's ongoing Game Pass subscription, selling DLC, what have you, right? Um, and it's also a signifier, like it's like a, a expectation management for consumers and even on the biz side that this is going to be a big project. Be prepared to spend a lot of time in it. Yes, and. Yes, and. Um, I mean, like, we also got to remember all of these folks have access to uh, mock reviews. And um, whether or not they engage with, like, an outside party to do the mock review or they have people internally doing it or however, it's it's all immaterial. Um, they know their game. And if you read uh, most of the Starfield reviews, almost all of them are like, yeah, it takes 20 hours to really, like, kind of start having fun. Right? And I am positive that that was brought up as an issue with the game at various points in the development right and so you can either you basically have like three options on how to deal with things like that one you can ignore it entirely this game is already so hyped and millions of people are going to play it like who cares they're probably going to play it a long time most people know what the elder scrolls is when they pick it up and have we sort of have that same expectation with Starfield, given who's making it. Um, two is you talk about it and you address it kind of head on, which is what they clearly chose, right? And them saying 130 hours and then most reviewers saying 20 um, actually makes them look better and smarter, right? And and gets consumers more excited about it. Like, oh my God, I read before it was going to take 130 hours. It's only 20. Like, thank God. Um, <laughs> and the third one, is you can talk, you can try to defend it. And I think um, if you look back, particularly at that Kotaku story or at um, some of the other interviews that they gave, they were never once uh, defensive about this in any, any way. They were just like, this is how we make games. People seem to like them. Um, look at our track record. I bet you're excited to play Starfield. And, you know, the game's so big, it, yeah, it's a big game. There's a 45 hour, pre 45 minute presentation of it, right? You don't get a 45 second trailer. You get a 45 minute gameplay deal, right? Like it was baked into the meal every single step of the way. Um, and then even at the end, they it seems like they intentionally oversold it and then under delivered. It's the wrong metaphor, but. They, they, they talked that it was going to take longer to get fun than it actually was, so consumers were pleasantly surprised. I'd, I'd also say the platforms that they announced that on were big stages, because um, one of them was during uh, IGN's opening night live like post-show. Uh, and yeah, I remember, because they they just came out and said it, where he was something like, yeah, he's like, I'm 130 hours in, and I still don't know what's happening, or like, I still haven't finished it. Like... So yeah, they knew, I mean, it was one of those that it was a, a, they knew who they were talking to. They knew who they needed to talk to. And they emphasized that point because it got soundbited and ran with, you know, across multiple outlets. So in all of these things, the 45 minute deep dive, the 130 to 150 hours to get into this, the a thousand planets to explore are all different slices of like the larger, you know, vision or, or 
positioning of this game is that it is your next, you know, thousand hour gaming adventure. It's it's something that we want you spending just as much time in this as you have spent the last Sam checks calendar right now, 12 years in Skyrim. Um, and because this is the jumping off point of hopefully, I, I'm sure Bethesda hopes is their third pillar of IP. So making it seem as ambitious as and as on par as their Fallout and uh, Elder Scrolls games is very important. Um, making it seem like we cannot possibly capture the scope of this thing in the lead up to this launch. Like you just have to get your hands on it yourself to find out. And I thought that was um, smartly tied into another, you know, piece of news and coverage that we want to discuss today, which was a New York Times story focusing on the 1000 planets um, feature of Starfield and how they made it happen. Of course, something we talk about often at the agency is how do we break these games into a mainstream outlet, make uh, a, a wider audience, not necessarily always in touch with gaming, care about the biggest new release. And I thought this was, you know, even though No Man's Sky did something similar a couple of years ago, um, looking at Starfield as an example of how do we use procedural generation to make the next generation of games, um, specifically when artificial intelligence is such a hot topic right now. This story actually made me recognize and appreciate how this game has gone about navigating that as a topic because AI can get a lot of game studios into hot water right now if it's, you know, supposedly, you know, pitched or positioned as taking away work from other devs. But but there's this out here in the New York Times saying, oh, no, it just made our process easier. Everything still went through the hands a of a developer and the care of it. It just made their job easier and made it possible for this 1000 planet adventure to even be possible. Um, what did you all think about that feature and how it was positioned? It, it was interesting seeing such a technical and gamer topic uh, getting such a strong placement in a mainstream outlet like the New York Times. I think the, the thing that they really did a good job with, and I, I suspect this was their positioning, was talking about the game as a cultural phenomenon because they had at this point they knew what they had right and they had enough proof points that they could go to the new york times and say look people are going to care about this <laughs> um and you know and also targeting the right reporter who would also care about that topic enough to want to explore it at depth right um because you don't become, you know, a cultural milestone or a cultural event with a short, you know, one-off experience. You need to show that people are going to be invested in it and showing that there's this vast universe to explore with, you know, a thousand planets is a way to do that. And then you need to talk about, well, how did you make that, right? Like, why, why is this going to be so important? And I know one of the quotes that I found really interesting about it that I feel like was both part of the interview, but also like a sort of a, a uh, anticipation of criticism was on around how the way a lot of the planets are populated or, or lack thereof. And they were talking about how uh, comparing it to man's first steps on the moon, <laughs> you know, they're like, we didn't go to the moon and it was filled with interesting things. It was barren, but exciting. <laughs> like you are exploring a, an undiscovered planet that should feel exciting in its own way. Uh, and, you know, so they had all of these like touch points to really hook people and hook the, the outlet and its audience into caring about this thing that would have, I feel like, largely been considered, you know, the geek nerd topic that they wouldn't have covered otherwise. Again, a bit of a judo flip of like, all of this. what? Please. I'm going to push back on all of this. Um, go, this game's been it. in development <laughs> for how long? Like when when did the first leak happen? Well, the, well they so officially it announced it in 2018. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the the copyright but claim was like right, like like ten years yeah. ago, right? Like I I don't remember exactly when I first remember reading like ah rumors Bethesda is working on a space game, but I think it was right around the time No Man's Sky launched. I think it was very yeah. close. Howard right. said active it's development a, of the game uh, began in November 2015, which would only have been a year or two after No Man's Sky. There you go. So um, from the jump, they had they knew 
that they had to deal with this elephant in the room that is the empty, uh, but very pretty, but very empty world of No Man's Sky. <laughs> right? And if you look at the end result, they also said a thousand planets, I think, really early. If you look at the end result, even in this New York Times piece, it's like 10% of them are valuable. Right? Yeah. Like only 10% of them will have life or usable materials or anything. Like, so they made a thousand planets and 10% are valuable. So they made a hundred valuable planets, which is still, don't get me wrong, that's insane. That is that scope is absolutely insane. Um, but did why do you need 900 empty ones then? <laughs> I, I haven't played the game like in depth, um, but I just don't think having 900 empty planets is like a big key feature for me. And it's something that it feels like they, um, the one sort of PR sin that I think they committed is there were times when I think they overpromised a little bit, right? This a thousand planets is definitely one of them. Um, and they've had to kind of walk it back with all of these 10% of them are valuable or whatever it is. They also like you show all of this space flight and you can't get in your spaceship on a planet and fly to another one. Yeah. But right in a game, that's like literally about the star field. None of the gameplay is actually in the field of stars. <laughs> well, there's, there's combat, I, but that's about it. But, <laughs> yeah. But you know what I mean? Right? Like it's, yeah. th- there is there. I remember it was maybe like a week or two before launch. And there were basically just like, very opaque Twitter threads going around about like, oh, so I'm playing Starfield and uh, I don't know. And I think a lot of it was a reaction to some of that, which is like very little. And I actually think they did a great job because this game is enormous and they sold how enormous it was. But I think there were some times they felt like at the last minute, they had to walk a couple things back. Now, did they do that well? Sure. Um, yeah. But would they have done that well in a world where No Man's Sky didn't come out before? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I think, yeah, they definitely like identified like the problem, crafted a pitch to tell it the way they wanted to tell it. Exactly. And as we saw that New York Times piece, like the parts of parts of it got picked up by the enthusiast press, uh, which gave them kind of a whole other news cycle. Um but you know, thinking about like our work on that, that shows the importance of really making sure your messaging is on point, because you know they they knew that that was going to be a topic of discussion. They knew that's a topic people cared about, and they knew that if they gave just the right soundbite, that it would amplify, be amplified further. I think it's really, I think it's a great case study in not being paralyzed by your weaknesses. Right. Like people, there are a lot of times when you hear about a game or we're even, you know, we're talking about how we're going to position a certain game. People will say, like, oh, we don't want to talk about that because it's not actually not all that great. And the reality is, gamers are going to play all of it. Right. And they're not stupid. And (laughs) if you don't talk about the parts of your game that aren't great and Every game except for um, God of War Ragnarok has weak spots. Sorry, <laughs> personal plug. <laughs> um, but every part of, of a game has weak spots. And if you don't proactively talk about them, gamers will, and you'll be accused of hiding it. And that looks way worse and is way more damaging than just being out there and figuring out the right methodology with which to talk about your weaknesses or even position them as strengths, Michael Scott style. Like this whole article, this whole New York Times article reminds me so much of that time when Michael Scott is interviewing for um, the New York job. And mm-hmm. he's, he's like, oh, yeah, my weakness is I care too much and I work too hard. And as you can see, my weaknesses are actually strengths. And people are just like, <laughs> Ugh, Michael, we hate you. And like, that's all that this article just felt like that in a nutshell to me. And it was really interesting that the New York Times would pick it up and, and write that piece for them on their behalf. Um, it's clearly, you know, Starfield got big enough that they needed some piece of it in their culture coverage. And they went with a, an unexplored probably underreported topic, which is like, how the heck did you do all this? Um, But even here, Bethesda was like, all right, let's zoom in on a couple of the weaknesses. We have the specific 
talking points and messages that we want to uh, disseminate around them and address them head on. And no, nothing is sort of off the table, or at least appearances are nothing is off the table. Right. Yeah. It's it's the presentation of transparency, but it's really controlled. And uh, I would say that, you know, that's, I know that's something we always counsel around of just like, you can't ignore the weak parts because if you do, you know, people will talk about it and then you lose control of the narrative and then suddenly the focus becomes on the things you don't want to talk about. So you've really got to acknowledge it, craft it in a way that keeps you in control and then steers it back to the thing you want people to talk about. And and there is never that moment where you get the, oh shit, email from a reporter of being like, hey, I just heard <laughs> about this thing that you didn't want to talk about and I have several questions. And obviously yep. I wouldn't say it that way, but like if somebody reached out to Bethesda right now and was like, Hey, I just want to talk about like how empty all of your planets are. They'd be like, that's not a surprise. We've been saying that for a long time. Look at this New York mm-hmm. times article. We said it in the biggest outlet in the whole country. Like, is that a gotcha moment? No. Cause they made sure it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the judo flip I was going to point out earlier. Like, you know, you imagine the mock review comes in and you know, it points out the game, doesn't get good until 20 hours in hence you know we're still we're still finding out how great this game is 150 hours in talking point and also like oh i landed on this plane and it's boring it's lifeless like okay that's all part of the you know isn't discovering a planet that just you know whether regardless of what's on it interesting uh it's just interesting breaking down the kind of alchemy of that also like honestly hilarious comparison (laughs) <laughs> right like completely hilarious well when they got on the moon for the first time like well the moon's been around for millions of years right <laughs> humans have wanted to go there since we can remember and we finally did it for the first time ever in the history of our species that's been around for god knows how long and this dude's like well like you've discovered a planet in a video game so it should be the same feeling like yo i've discovered a planet in a video game before <laughs> you know but but that speaks but nick that like that's a really good point because we always talk with people about like how to reach the yeah. mainstream in a way that they understand and like that point just shows how they don't pay attention and how we so often silly. have to step in and are like present something in a way that you kind of loop it all together but it it works for them, right? They have to understand why it's important. I like that. Because like, if you say the words podcast, like "big it's just all RP," about now. <laughs> it was like, like this is like, if you if you take you know if you go to New York Times, you're like, hey, I want to talk to you about big RPG. There, you know, they're gonna be like, what's RPG? <laughs> you know, and then it's like, oh, okay, you know, like, it's just how not in tune to it they are and that's fine so i mentioned my professor earlier the two things he flagged to me that he was you know planning on bringing to his class to discuss was a the 130 hours kind of talking point that was going around and outside of talking points the other big pr hiccup and talk of the town in advance of the august 31st review embargo lifting was that several UK outlets did not get review codes for this game. Uh, Eurogamer on the 29th, again, two game, uh, two days before the review embargo lifted, um, the editor-in-chief put out a, a, a letter, a note, notifying its readers that a review wouldn't be coming on the 31st. I'm reading an excerpt here um, from that uh, editor-in-chief, Tom Phillips. Uh, just two days away from Starfield's review embargo, Eurogamer is still yet to receive a copy of the game from Bethesda, Access to the game appears to have been heavily restricted in the UK, where Bethesda has not only provided uh, copies of Starfield to other websites and YouTube channels owned by Eurogamer parent company Repop, has not uh, to other uh, companies of Repop. Meanwhile, some UK outlets have been provided access through US uh, Bethesda's US arm. Um, at the end of this letter, there was an interesting note um, about Digital Foundry, which of course is also part of the Repop family. Um, Tom writes, you should expect to see relatively prompt coverage of the game by Rich and his team after a separate delivery of Starfield Co. was provided to them. However, this was provided alongside instruction to me by Bethesda that no other parts of Eurogamer were granted access. This was an unprecedented request, but one I ultimately felt compelled to honor to ensure the access granted to Digital Foundry was not subsequently impacted by any other mandate. Uh, this was a bit of a surprising one for me, considering that uh, IGN and GameSpot and, and several other um, of the big US outlets 
um, got code. What was your guys' read on this situation? It, that was interesting because they reached out, essentially they reached out to Eurogamer to tell Eurogamer they weren't getting a code and instead they were giving it to someone else. <laughs> That's kind of a PR no-no. <laughs> uh, well, they're like, all in the I same mean, family. So like the Eurogamer yeah. editors knew Digital Foundry had a code and were probably hitting up Digital Foundry and being like, yo, let us get in there. And then Digital Foundry went back to Bethesda and was like, hey, can we give it to them? And they were like, no. Right. So they yeah. they were not in the position where they, they probably didn't send a note being like, hi, Eurogamer, you will not be getting a code, but Digital Foundry will. Best of luck, Bethesda. Right. Like all of these things. They, they, it, you well, know, it's just like when I first heard the story, that's <laughs> right. how it was presented. Right. right. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's a weird, weird way to do that. Um, you know, but I think like we as PRP, we, we target. I mean, there's we that's open public knowledge. People know we target. If somebody's not getting a key, they can probably guess why. Um, you know, or they or they can reach out and ask, and you know, we can manage. But like, uh, it was interesting. Like, I, we see we saw this conversation too with Cyberpunk. I remember because like anytime there's like a big big triple a release there's always a couple people who get left out and then they talk about it and it always sparks this same conversation of you know our review will be late because we didn't get key reason 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 right um what was i found interesting this time was uh you know, because of the like people making comparisons and drawing dots to like Digital Foundry and the other folks in the the ReadPop family, but also um, I think it was GamesIndustry.biz did the whole um, analysis of like the state of games media and like the reliance on needing the new hotness to like be able to stay relevant and afloat. Um, it was a, a fascinating read. I recommend people checking it out. Um, you know, people have mixed opinions on it, uh, but it is, I know it's, it is interesting just to see how reliant a lot of these people are on not just, you know, getting get, the review content is review content, right? Like uh, there'll be a million and one reviews, but it's the other things you can do to capitalize on the SEO for the game's popularity to help drive traffic. Uh, and that's something we've seen long tail for even still going on for Baldur's Gate. Like, we have outlets that are still committing large chunks of editorial resources to pumping out X, Y, Z Baldur's Gate article because the game is still so popular and bringing them traffic. And like, ultimately that's why the outlets are always trying to get stuff early. People are asking us for codes for Diablo four guides like this week. It, yeah. that game launched in June. It's September, right? Like, the content ecosystem doesn't die. Now, what I do think is interesting, and Blaine, I'm so sorry to have cut you off there. I just thought it was like Go for it. <laughs> that perfect moment. Um, what I think is interesting is it does highlight a problem um, in how we do PR, right? Like, I promise you, Bethesda would not have said no to, uh, sure, Eurogamer, you can have codes for guide content. Now, of course, Eurogamer is not going to want to get out of the review business or not want to do it in that way. But because you kind of go part and parcel with both, um, Bethesda, for whatever reason, clearly just didn't want Eurogamer to review it. Right. And we don't need to even really get into that. Like, I, I think it's frankly kind of stupid for a game that has reviewed as well as Starfield has. I think video game reviews with numbers in general are really dumb. Um, and horrible for our industry. And that is a whole separate podcast topic, so forget it. But if the <laughs> review and guide had been more of a church and state style separation, I think Eurogamer would have gotten probably more traffic than they would for just putting out a review. They would still have all of that fun, juicy guide traffic that they want. Um, and they just wouldn't have a review. But th that, doesn't, that conversation doesn't really happen. And is just kind of it, it was the first sort of big alarm bell for me that that conversation doesn't happen. I don't want to be the person who has that conversation with any reporter. Um, but I, I wonder if it's something that uh, our industry is going to have to tackle, grapple with, and think about. 
um, as we move forward. Well, it's even the question of like, when it comes to targeting, like it's not under our control with big outlets, which reporter ends up with our code. It's like, you know, oh, like this person at this outlet really likes X type of genre, but they might not check out this game because of bandwidth or PTO or whatever have you. And um, I do agree that I think, you know, whether it's the transparency or the comms or just the (laughs) outright honesty needed to navigate the way the code distribution and the PR round reviews, previews and guides work um, may change because, you know, the article that Blaine mentioned came from Brendan Sinclair. The headline was uh, Starfield review controversy traces games, journalism or games, journalism's orbital decay. I'll just read one quote from the very end here. Um, We're at the point now where one publisher withholding review codes for one release can mean the difference between a good year or a bad year for multiple outlets. And if that is the state of things, which not if, because that is the state of things, um, I do think that that sort of change that Nick highlighted might be coming. And like he said, that's not a conversation I necessarily look forward to, but I, I I'm, will not be surprised if that day comes. Well, and that's part of the broader conversation around the media landscape that we're all constantly navigating around, you know, because should that be the way the business is run is up for debate. Um, one would argue no, <laughs> uh, but you know, if you know, like, and I think there's a thing, something to be said, if you know that you're not getting that review up at Embargo Lift, what other types of content can you do to fill its place? Uh, and then that's a conversation that you can have with, say, if it needs to be Starfield with Starfield's PR team to be like, okay, if we can't do reviews, what else can we do? Uh, the answer might be nothing, but it's still a conversation that uh, people should have. Right. Like, yeah. Especially if your entire business is reliant yeah. on it. <laughs> so instead um, of whining, I don't know. I, I, I was so turned off by that Eurogamer piece. I get what they're saying and I get why they're frustrated. And like, you know, I'm sure that at some point I will, we're, you know, be upset that I'm withholding a review code from someone I want to give it to. Or, and I'm sure that will happen. Right. In fact, I know the, it's happened to me in my career before. Uh, and the interesting bit about that was an hour after they published they were given a review key yeah yeah it worked so. i mean like their their sort of threat temper tantrum worked um but yeah. it sucks that they had to even have a temper tantrum right like temper tantrums aren't something you associate with like grown-up serious business and this post is a temper tantrum that's really what it is um and like I said, I don't blame them for it. I, w- I would have thrown this exact same temper tantrum not on my keyboard, um, but I would have. Um, and I get why Eurogamer has to do it, but yeah, it is, it, it is interesting to live in a world where reporters have to throw a public temper tantrum when they're you know one of the most well-trafficked video game sites in the world to get a review code for one of the five biggest releases in 2023. I mean, that just says a lot about like, what is the media landscape and how are people thinking about the art of communications? Agreed. Uh, Speaking of the art of communications, the last thing, oh, yeah, go on, Blaine. I was going to say, it's also an illustration of how um, everything you say is on the record because I bet that whoever they were talking to on the PR team wasn't expecting the, an article about their interaction. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a thing to be mindful of just, you know, I know we talk about it internally all the time of if you are having a conversation with an outlet, it is on the record. It doesn't matter how off the record you think it is. It is on the record. Yeah. Especially that uh, whoever wrote the digital, you know, like Nick, astutely probably pointed out the way it played out like reach out to digitally found like these are for your team not for any others under read pop like i'm sure they weren't expecting that to make its way into writing somewhere else in in the form that it did at least and i know when whenever we've talked with our clients especially when giving out review keys for highly publicized titles like there is there has to be some or usually should be some measure of risk acceptance (laughs) you know like so that you prevent that conversation from happening yeah Exactly. Uh, while we're talking about the media landscape, just kind of in closing, 
Starfield itself is obviously the big moment in gaming of, you know, following Baldur's Gate, which was the big moment in gaming about a month ago. And uh, I'm just curious if you both, you know, it's something we've discussed before um, a couple months ago during the Diablo 4, Street Fighter 6, Tears of the Kingdom, Jedi Survivor period of you know, the effect on the media landscape during this time, especially amidst Gamescom, which was a whole nother wrench in this whole uh, kit and caboodle of who's available, who can write about anything else other than Starfield or Gamescom at this time. Um, just curious if you two, like, have any broader thoughts on, like, how you navigated these past couple weeks. Uh, it's very similar <laughs> to navigating the summer games extravaganza. <laughs> um because truthfully, like if you are a developer or a marketing person and you're trying to figure out your marketing timeline and you find out that you have something slated smack in the middle of the biggest release of the year, one of the biggest releases of the year, chances are your ROI is not going to be as impactful as you want it to be, or you're going to have to spend exponentially higher to get the same result. Uh, you know, we're seeing it across the board where we have reporters telling all of us every day. I can't do thing because I have to cover more Starfield. <laughs> uh, and that's happening everywhere. Um, so, and that's, also, that's happening with influencers too. Um, influencer rates are up right now because, you know, like media outlets, influencers are capitalizing on the SEO value of, you know, getting their videos trafficked um, on Starfield. So, you know, if, if you're not Starfield or not of equivalent caliber, uh, be prepared to face an uphill battle. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting is, um, and I'll just use destiny two again. Um, destiny two launched a raid last week. Right. And they did it on, they did their whole like big world race to defeat it on challenge mode and all that stuff. They moved it to Friday, which was the first mm -hmm. and the same day as early access for Starfield. Usually it's on a Thursday. And it just stood out to me as like this departure moment um, and sort of counter to what I think most people's instincts would be of just like, A, now it's not your day, right? Like, let's move this to another day. And they just decided not to. And um, they got a lot of attention for it. Uh, it's done quite well in their community. And I, I don't think it hurt them at all, but it was interesting to see that intentionally get scheduled for their day and date. Right? I think it was literally the exact same launch time even um, as Starfield, and it just did fine. So D Destiny 2 is not a great example because it's not like some little indie game that struggles for attention. In fact, like there's a character like right behind me right there. That's my Destiny <laughs> 2 guy. Um, but just really interesting that someone would just be like, you know what? Screw it. I don't care. Same day. Let's go. Um, the, the other game – I used to work on Star Citizen. Right, I used to work on Star Citizen, and Star Citizen did a free fly um, the same time. So you could play Star Citizen for free at the same time that Starfield was coming out. And if you look at their pledge counter, because they all of their um, revenue is all public because uh, they're a Kickstarter campaign, they actually spiked um, again in revenue right as Starfield was coming out, and particularly after the review embargo that laid bare a couple of the sort of like empty planets, no flying from place to place. And like a couple of the things that star citizen does do, there are very few things that star citizen can say <laughs> are like, these are our feature set and this is where it goes. And this is how you play. And like all of that stuff. But the few things really stood out in that moment and created a huge marketing moment for this game. And it moved their uh, pledge revenue up and to the right. During the same during the time that like literally the biggest space game in twenty years came out, this other space game also capitalized, which I thought was really interesting, and they did it without paid marketing. Yeah, it's interesting because it's like if you are a big enough title or well known enough title, and you have like a group of very vocal and ravenous players, um, they will go and be your brand ambassadors to all the people who are not playing <laughs> the big title, right? But to get to that point, like that takes time and that takes a lot of money. Like that's not something you can just, you know, flip a switch and it's there, <laughs> right? So uh, it is. Just, I, I remember even going thinking way back for the original Cyberpunk launch and and 
some people may remember this, but anytime Cyberpunk announced a new launch date, you suddenly had every other big RPG moving their release calendar around uh, because they knew it was going to be a challenge. They didn't want to, like if you're competing in the same genre close enough to it, to the biggest title, like why set yourself up for that failure? Unless obviously if you have other business pressures, then you, you have to. But if you have the flexibility to move, then, you know, it doesn't hurt you to avoid it. It doesn't hurt you to avoid it, but it's also like those two examples that I cited, right? Destiny 2, also a first-person shooter. So is Starfield. Sci-fi first-person shooter. What's the weakest part of Starfield? Probably it's like moment-to-moment, like gunplay combat. What's the strongest part of Destiny? Exactly that. Cool, we'll do it at the exact same time, right? (laughs) We'll invite that comparison on this day. Same thing with Star Citizen. What's the strength of Star Citizen? Get in a spaceship, fly wherever the hell you want. What's the weakness of Starfield? Can't get in a spaceship and fly wherever the hell you want. Great, we're going. But you really have to pay really close attention to your feature set in comparison. Otherwise, you're right. It's very easy to get drowned out. But it it is also a moment where if you contrast really well, you can stand out even more than you maybe thought you could originally. Yeah, you just need to be really confident in that feature set. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because... <laughs> If you start going toe to toe with the big player, you're going to get compared. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to bring it all full circle, Baldur's Gate 3, of course, was supposed to release on August 31st, uh, a day before Starfield's early access. And they took their shot. And rather than delay or or stick with that, they, they moved it up a month to August 3rd and obviously played out so well for them record steam you know numbers 800,000 concurrent players and it played out so for well for them in fact that it served as a point of comparison for starfield when it came out like probably one in every third starfield review you're going to read is going to mention baldur's gate 3 in there and then yeah. come um you know september 6th starfield's wide launch day um sure media might not be paying attention to um or some media may not be paying attention to Baldur's gate 3 but every playstation dedicated outlet podcast streamer youtuber they're going to be picking up that game instead and the Baldur's gate 3 hype train continues a month later so with that anyway that is full circle and this has been real-time strategy uh blaine and nick thank you so much for joining us and for talking about uh one of the biggest game releases of the year and breaking it down this was a a really fun comprehensive case study it's a fun one yeah that was a smooth transition let's go (laughs) (laughs) it's why why they pay me the big bucks (laughs) you can find the show everywhere at real-time strats you can email us as questions if you have any questions about Baldur's gate 3 starfield pr etc let us know at podcast at triple point pr.com and until the next one thank you all so much for listening